Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Ezra Bookman. Ezra is an experienced designer, artist, and facilitator exploring the transformational power of ritual. He's the creator of Ritualist, a creative studio helping leaders cultivate more conscious companies and connected communities. Also is the youngest board member of The Secret City, an Obie award-winning arts organization, and is the former artistic director for Lab Shul, an experimental, artist-driven, God-optional Jewish community in New York City. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ezra, so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Open to Summit. Thank you so much. I'm uh, really excited to be here and be a part of this conversation. So we first met a number of years ago when we were working at LabShul and you're doing a lot of their artistic events. I'm your artistic director, or you were doing a lot of ritual design around the services and, and things even beyond the services. I know the, the slowdown and a couple other creative expressions of Jewish ritual and, and ways of engaging with it. Yeah, I'm curious, though, maybe you could talk a little bit about how, what led you to this work that you're doing now with Ritualist. And uh, I'm curious as well, kind of if that started even further back. Sure. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, LabTool is an experimental, artist-driven, everybody-friendly, God-optional pop-up Jewish community that's based in New York. And I was the artistic director for five years. You know, LabTool was really trying to reinvent in every way, you know, what it means to be a part of a modern spiritual community. And with one foot deeply rooted in tradition, but one foot deeply rooted in the present moment. So it was a, a real creative challenge of, you know, reimagining an ancient tradition. My journey into that is actually through theater and performance. I was trained as a director and performance artist, and I got really interested in shamanic and indigenous religions and traditions and got a research grant to explore and, and go actually to South America, learning with shamans in South America and trying to create new ways of training artists to create work that was more spiritually resonant and impactful for themselves and for the audience. Sort of holding art to the expectation of, you know, this can be a transformational experience. You can walk in and walk out a different person. And that is both the artist and, and the audience holding, holding that. So, so thinking about techniques of, you know, for like, for instance, there's a lot of shamanic traditions that uh, incorporate possession, which seems to be taking the idea of playing a character to the farthest extent that it can go, where you're, you're not playing a character, you're actually inhabited by a spirit. So what are the ways in which you prepare for that? How do you over a lifetime, but certainly in the moment before and the moment after, how do you transition in? How do you transition out? How do you engage your body and your mind in order to be able to do that? And can we learn from that for our performance in, in other contexts and, and in a more artistic context? So that spun me out on like a whole journey, I would say, um, through LabShul and exploring new kinds of artistic spaces. And, and new kinds of ritual spaces sort of simultaneously. So that, you know, the, the way that I described it was exploring the spiritual transformation that's possible in really good art and the artistic imagination that's necessary for deeply impactful ritual. And 
what I saw at LabShul was that the, the issues that we were presented with, the societal changes that were happening around us were far bigger than any one community could handle. And that a lot of people in a lot of different contexts, especially in secular contexts, were exploring this need for people today to find meaning and purpose and belonging. And that the words community and culture were, you know, everywhere around me. But this fundamental tool that we have used as as a species for thousands of years to create culture and community, which is ritual, was greatly misunderstood. And my experience through art and through lab show helped me see the, the key elements and the key components of a ritual. And I wanted to bring that learning and that wisdom to everyone that was interested in creating community and culture change within their companies or their organizations or their societies or their cities or their countries. So cool. And I didn't know that about the the kind of shamanistic roots to to some of your interests in ritual. It's uh, it's so interesting. You know, I'm curious when, you know, at LabShul, you you experimented the whole number of different expressions of Jewish ritual as well as collaborators, right? Including House of Yes, which is a, you know, a wonderful space in New York, maybe still, that, you know, part nightclub, part kind of theater, part arts, arts house. Can you talk just a little bit about what some of those events look like specifically within Lapshul and how you, what your kind of design process was like then? Um, and then maybe we can get into some of the, the current process. Yeah, I think the design process often started from Jewish tradition. So whether it was a holiday or, I mean, it was often a holiday or a holy day that has its own theme, purpose, um, and history. And the design process usually started in that with the question of, what does this mean to us today? And how do I relate to these themes and traditions and ideas? I I sometimes describe ritual or, or holidays as sort of like pools or lakes along the road of life that invite you to stop and rest and look into the reflection, look into the reflection of this water and see yourself in the specific reflection that this water uh, provides. And that's the beauty in the, that, that holidays can provide for us, this constant return to the same waters to see ourselves anew. So that's really where the design process would start. And usually it was, it was, I mean, it was always in collaboration, always with a group of people of different interests and, and, and experiences and ages. And then I, th- I think the, the next question is, what is the purpose? What is our goal? You know, what are we trying to achieve? How are we walking into this? Who are we as we walk into this? And how do we want to emerge from this? What is the change that we want to see? What is the transformation we are seeking, what is the what is the threshold we want to cross? And really grounding our, our experiences with that kind of uh, focused purpose. Um, and then, I mean, it took every imaginable form. I mean, you mentioned House of Yes, we did a number of events. This was like New York's, I would say, best nightclub, or at least one of the best. And we, in our event called The Slowdown, on Friday night, transformed it into this, you know, quiet, sacred temple and this dance floor that like, you know, has seen, you know, thousands and thousands of people sweating and dancing and the loudest music you can imagine was 
you know, so, so still and so quiet as a way of transitioning out of the work week and into the weekend with consciousness and mindfulness and connection with the people around you, taking this wisdom, this kernel of Shabbat, right? The Sabbath, the rest, this weekly reminder to rest and imagining it as a universal practice. What does it mean to invite people into that wisdom of creating that intentional threshold out of the work week? And how do we create practices inspired by Jewish tradition and and other traditions to to do so? I'm not sure if I answered that question. I, I could get really specific into um, you know into what that event looked like, but that was a little bit of our process. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to know. I mean, I unfortunately never made it out to one of the House of Yes events. No, Percy checked out a couple of your your Shabbats at down um, at Dekalb and up in up in Harlem. But yeah, I mean, would you would you be down and just talk through a little bit like what you know what what was the experience of someone walking into the House of Yes that night and, and kind of what were were there specific moments you thought about as, in terms of um, you know the journey and kind of moving towards the the transformation you're looking to cultivate. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that an event begins when you first find out about it. That's when the event has started. So, you know, we think about the copy that you encounter, the design of the image that you, you know, that you find, the process of signing up, all of those things. You're already thinking about the event. You're imagining it. You're thinking about yourself there. You're planning for it. And so um, the event has already begun. So, we saw it as like a as a multi-step process so that by the time that you walked up to the door you've already prepared yourself so i think one of the most like obvious examples of that is that we had a, a dress code we told people to dress either in white gold or silver and we used all this sort of like you know language around elevated attire so that moment when you're back at home and looking through your closet and planning and you you bought some glitter and like all that stuff is is psychologically preparing you to enter into a different space than where you're coming from. You physically look different and that that external change helps with the internal change. And then you know the, the <laughs> I think this is like the the performance artist theater in, person in me thinking about like every moment that you encounter, trying to subvert it in some way. So whatever your expectation of this is how this normally happens, this is how I show up to a club, this is how I show up to a Shabbat, I want to subvert that expectation. So we thought a lot about check-in. And before, if I'm remembering correctly, before you actually, most people, the first thing that you encounter is a check-in table. And And it's usually like horizontal, it's like blocking the entrance. It means like you're not welcome here until you tell me that you paid me. But instead, we had someone greeting everybody with flowers and gave every single person as they were walking up a little flower and said, welcome to them. So that the first exchange that happened was a a moment of gifting from us to them. They were receiving rather than the, the other way around. And it also is just another tweak of like, oh, this is different. And then there was about an hour or so of just open hangout time. We had a beautiful dinner that was catered. And we thought about all of the Jewish rituals of the Sabbath, lighting, which are traditionally to greet the Sabbath, you light candles, you drink wine, and you, um, you know, bless food, and, or, and you wash your hands. And so we wanted people to, as they were moving about, to encounter those rituals as invitations that were optional to them. So at the bar, there were these signs that had a poem and, and 
you know, an invitation to slow down and to thank the, t- thank the bartender and notice what was in their cup and the transformation. Before the buffet table, we had volunteers who were washing people's hands. Another opportunity of receiving with like lavender water. There was a candle lighting table that people could enter. They received uh, what we called angel cards, which had almost like a tarot word, this beautiful Hebrew word and its English translation. We told people, like, there are three other people here that have the same word as you, who are the same angel as you. Like, go find them as a subtle invitation into meeting new people and having something to talk about, trying to break down that anxiety of, I'm new to this space, I don't know anybody. How do I go up to somebody? Well, I've got this card that helps me start a conversation. After an hour of that, then we we all sat down in circles on the floor and we had about an hour of experimental ritual with uh, meditation and sound healing and toning together and like a turn to your neighbor moment of meeting the other person around you as this you know slow movement into sabbath time and sabbath space and then when all that happened we we leaned back and li- <laughs> laid back and had an unplugged concert from a local artist who did like uh yeah like an acoustic set for about 20 25 minutes as we passed trays of dessert around so we could just lounge and really relax and experience art, which is what I want to do on Shabbat. So cool. So cool. Yeah, I, a couple of things are coming up for me in terms of uh, questions or reflections on that. I know um, one thing that I'm, um, that's coming up is my first time in lab shul, uh, one thing I was very aware of is just how the energy shifted so much throughout the night. Um, where you have people kind of sitting, maybe Amachai Rabbi starts talking, maybe some music starts playing. And then there's times when just through no kind of direction, no orchestration, people start clapping, people start standing up. And you can you can sense a very tangible energy in the room and of people kind of coming together as one. And then just on its own, that naturally kind of subsides and people sit down again. And then it might kind of crescendo again, maybe with the music or, you know, however the spirit, if you will, is filling people throughout the evening. And one thing I've thought about since that evening was the sense of, you know, as uh, someone who's designing experiences, whether within a community or, or one-off um, kind of events, how to think about kind of like the energy in the room and, and the different aspects of the experience that can go to kind of create that. And I'm curious, you know, and it seems a little bit almost like a playwright where, you know, you can have a whole bunch of elements of a story and if they're not cohesive, they don't come together. This doesn't mean anything, right? You can say, okay, here are the ingredients of the dish, but they have to kind of like work well. And so as an experience designer, you can go, you can visit Lab Shul, you can visit other kind of worship services and notice elements of music and lighting, the, the rituals you mentioned. But I'm curious, you know, do you have like a, when you're planning this out, are you mapping it in some way? Are you thinking consciously about what these, like the different experiences are and how, I guess, the energy or, or how people are kind of, the emotional experience you're trying to cultivate at a given moment? Yeah. yeah, great question. And, you know, to be clear at Labshul, we, we, and I, I know I mentioned this, but it really was a collaborative event. And I, and I yeah. want to, you know, definitely say that I was always making these events in collaboration with Rabbi Amichai and Shira Less and, uh, excuse me, Shira Klein and Naomi Less and the rest of our amazing team of ritualists. We definitely thought a lot about the flow of energy. I think you know, the, the the best way to do that is really to pause 
close your eyes and, and imagine yourself moving through the event and doing each of the things and going as far back as you can, like getting it onto the train, getting off the train and, and thinking about those details of where is my coat going? Oh, you know, where, and how did I, and how did I move around that table and putting yourself through the experience of an average individual coming to your event is really effective. Um, and, and I would say necessary to, to play a supportive role and to care for them as they're, when they're in your event. I think any ritual has this inherent tension between the structure and the, like you said, like the scripting of it, where you're really trying to move people through a specific journey and there's steps and there's guides and there's step one, step two. And it can be so specific. If you look at a Japanese tea ritual, I mean, it's how you hold the cup and how you turn it and how long it takes, you know, to the detail. And so there's that. And then intention with the, you know, infinite reality that is the human beings that are there, right? Each one of them infinite in and of themselves and coming in with their own needs and stresses and histories and baggage and who are like, like atoms, you know, resonating and vibrating against each other in that space and their energy and how they respond is that impossible to predict element within your ritual that a good ritual makes space for. A good ritual tells and communicates to the people who are present and interacting with it that their presence matters and what they do and how they act and they have ownership over their own experience. And they're not just, you know, traveling down the, the assembly line of this ritual. And so I think there's only that you can you can script as much as you as much as you want. But if you're not aware and present and listening to the people in the room, it will likely fall flat because you can't predict who exactly will be there and how they'll respond. And you need to make space for it. Right, right. Well, and I know my my sister is deep in the in the theater world, and I know uh, one of the things she's been uh, we've been talking a lot about with regards to immersive theater is the idea of consent. And you know, how do you both invite audiences into a space, but make sure that they have a sense of being able to like modulate, like a you know kind of uh, titrate up and down their experience based on their comfort level and what they're really looking for at the time. Yeah, I had um, I had a friend who was creating theater, and it was like very immersive theater inspired by game design. And I and I remember them saying at the start of one of their very very intimate interactive pieces, um, like this is an interactive piece of theater. You don't have to interact if you don't want to. And giving people that permission is really liberating and creating a, a space that can be both safe and brave at the same time. You know, I think the the other thing that comes to mind when you're talking about really being, I guess, aware and present with the people participating in an experience and making sure that it's adapting to what they're bringing to the space to keep it alive and to keep the, the ritual vital. The other thing that comes to mind for me is just, you know, the, all of the things you talked about, about the slowdown at the house of yes, right? The, the element of welcome, the washing of hands, the experiencing light the music, the sound, like the, the quiet, you know, if, if one didn't put those experiences in the context of a Shabbat 
it would still be an interesting event and there might be some like meaning to it. But I think there's something more like weighty and more meaningful when you ascribe, we say, no, this isn't just a, a set of stimuli that you're moving through tonight um, that we've crafted for you for various reasons. It's no, this is this is a new expression of a tradition that's been around for thousands of years and that is kind of connected to how you know, millions of people have tried to seek out what mattered most for them in life, right? The sacred in some, some expression, right? And, you know, I, I guess one thing that I've been touching on a lot, and I'd be curious to emphasize in some more of your current work, is, you know, when we're not explicitly referencing a tradition or when the ritual isn't coming explicitly out of a tradition, um, how do you think about tapping into that broader meaning? Or do you even that's that's important in some of these more more secular settings? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a really important question. And so I'm grateful that you're asking it. So my design practice is called the ritual lines and it identifies the seven elements of ritual and transformative experiences. And one of the elements is story, which is to say framing. And it is perhaps one of the most powerful elements of all because the same exact ritual action framed in a different way takes on a completely different meaning. And one of the stories that we tell about ritual, one of the ways that we frame ritual is through ancient religious tradition. And it's valid and important and grows in and and helps connect the specific action that you're doing to something larger, into a larger story that's happening. And that ability of a ritual to zoom in and zoom out is one of the reasons why they are such powerful tools. That being said, there are many ways of framing a ritual and many things that are bigger than us that we can connect to. I think in secular spaces, we talk, I, I, talk, I talk a lot about your values and your mission and your purpose and your vision for the world and helping connect people to that. I think community in and of itself is a bigger thing, a bigger value that you can connect to. There's also, you know, frameworks of seeing the world, the constitution, the universe, Mother Earth, love of the earth, so many different layers that we can use to frame our ritual. I would say a tradition is a, an action that grows in meaning through repetition. And that's one of the reasons why religious rituals can be so powerful because they've been repeated so much and they have grown in meaning because of that. But it's only one of the elements, it's only one of the ways that a action grows in meaning and has impact. There's all these other elements, you know, six other elements that are present in a ritual that are also tools for bringing meaning impact into the action that you're doing. And so I think a good designer can ground into a story, into a framing that everyone in the space can tap into, regardless of religious affiliation or framework, as well as activate all those other elements that are helping that ritual feel alive. Right. Well, and I mean, maybe this is a great opportunity. Would you mind diving a little bit deeper into the rest of those elements? What is, what is the kind of process that you, you work through with clients or even when you're kind of thinking through your own meaningful experiences you want to design? Sure. Um, sort of two different questions. I think 
you know, I can I can name the the elements really easily. That doesn't necessarily speak to the process because each project that I've taken on, taken on has been so unique and different, and it tends to take the shape of a of a general consulting practice where there's a period of time of research and data and information collecting and one-on-one interviews and learning, you know, depths of this company and their mission and, and the purpose of what the ritual that they're trying to create and then a design process and then an iterative process where we're testing out theories and, and tweaking culture change and community building is a labor-intensive, time-intensive process. And so there's very rarely a single ritual that will, you know, you can snap your fingers and overnight change happens. They, they take time. But the, the seven ritual lines are story, place, poetry, time, body, symbolism, and meaning. Story, which is framing wisdom and tradition and history and epistemologies and worldviews. Place, which is the the environment, the location, which includes both the physical space, but also your spatial relationship between the participants. And that can include the location's history and meaning and the energy of a space, which are other things that you can tap into for framing. Poetry is words, is all kinds of elevated language that we use to distinguish ritual time. Amanda Gorman's uh, poem at the inauguration is an excellent example of the way that using this elevated language helps us acknowledge this time as important and special, if not sacred. But those can be prayers and blessings and intentions and incantations and chants and songs, whether you speak them out loud or you you know have an intention in your head. Time, which I also talk about as rhythm, it's the way that the ritual is situated in time and the reasons for when it happens. So how frequently it repeats, if it repeats at all, the duration, and also its relationship to the different ways of marking time. You know, is it connected to the to moon or astrology or sacred calendar or holidays, the seasons in a more secular connotation? Um, body is the senses, all the ways a ritual engages the, the physical body. Symbolism are these are the tools that it's often the presence of physical objects, but even actions can take on symbolic meaning. These are things that don't have a purely instrumental purpose. And especially with physical objects can help us make tangible what would otherwise be intangible. And also give an intangible thought or feeling extend its ability to be present in your life by having it as a physical object. And then meaning, which is perhaps the hardest element of all, but that is the connection to to something that is bigger or beyond yourself, which I think a lot of times we associate ritual very much in like the wellness space of these personal things that I do for me, for me to feel better, but real good ritual connects us to something that is bigger than ourselves. It helps us zoom out. And it's often deeply personal and rich and varied. And I, I you know, I, t- I talked about some of those, some of those possibilities, but that's, those are the seven ritual lines. So cool. You know, I wouldn't have thought of song or prayer, these things as poetry, but I actually really like that kind of categorization because I think it allows for in a secular space where you know, at a company, it might feel weird if we had like an entire group of people just start singing something, you know, together. And then, you know, I think often in secular settings, it can almost be the like, you know, 
oh, is this a cult kind of red flag that can come up if ritual is almost too salient? But I love poetry because it's something that can come in as as a, you know, something that, yeah, it doesn't, I think, have some of that same connotations, but has that same way of elevating um, space. Uh, yeah, and I use I use it loosely. I use the word poetry, obviously, very loosely. But I, I mean, I think, again, looking at the inauguration, but certainly in civic spaces, we see a lot of, you know, we now call the meeting to order all this like very sort of official language that is poetic in nature in the sense that it's elevated, it's different, it's not conversational. And it's a psychological trigger for us to recognize this time as different. And I think, you know, even in a meeting, in, in a business setting, you know, if you closed your weekly team meeting with, you know, thank you all. I'm grateful for each and every one of you for who you are, for what you bring to this team and for the work that you do. Something like that, you know, even it can be subtle, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, I think people often, and especially in the work that I do, people associate ritual with has to be this massive, crazy, um, woo-woo, you know, thing. But ritual is actually infused into our daily lives in ways that are subtle and sometimes silly and often quiet but that they simply help us slow down. I think that they, they offer a little bit of friction in life so that whatever you're doing, you take a little bit more time to do it. You know, in the example of the slowdown, right? Like we can just rush into that buffet table and eat food because that's what we're trying to do, just eat. But we took this moment to, before you do that, we're going to slow you down and pour some water over your hands and wash your hands so that then you enter that table. It took a little bit longer. You're a little bit more aware of the you know, miracle that it is to have a plate of food and the privilege that that is when so many in the world do not. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about what you mentioned before in terms of like values being something that, you know, we can point to in a secular setting. And, you know, it seems like one of the things I've seen is it seems like there's a real kind of DIY approach, almost to spirituality and meaning making these days, where you know outside of tradition, people are kind of pulling from multiple traditions. You know, like I myself, I sat on the live show a bunch of times, and I also would you know sit in the New York Insight Meditation Center, and occasionally drop in on like a Quaker meeting, right? And I think what's interesting is you know you have you know all these different people with, with maybe very different personal values, and I'm curious, you know, when you're doing some of this research now to doing the interview process to design a new ritual like how do you work with the variety and the sheer diversity of values and things that people find important within a community when there may not be an existing kind of overarching story or set of values or all these things that people have either been kind of you know i guess vetted for in a company or even opted into explicitly like self-selected into if if there's nothing uh, nothing explicit yeah, it's a it's a whole um, you know it's a whole process, and you know some good workshops where we bring people together to talk about what matters most to them, and to to hash it out, and to usually get a a, a broad spectrum, you know, to get 20, 30 values up on the board, and then to go through the painstaking process of narrowing it down to four, or five, and that process in and of itself of that those conversations that you have about why this why i'm gonna like put my flag down and stake my claim on like this value needs to be here in this organization it's that conversation that 
that conversation in and of itself is, is the work, really. And ritual is the way of ultimately activating those values. So they're not just a Google Doc, but there's actually shared lived experiences in the company or in the community that embodies those values, that speak those values out, and that show that those values matter in this and that, and that bring actual behaviors to those values. So they're not just ephemeral ideas. You know, I think if, if people are working with me, it's because they want this, uh, whether or not they have it or not. And I think that people who are working with me are aware of the desire to have or, or have a desire for their work at, to have purpose and for their employees to be and to feel connected and motivated and for their customers to feel cared for and seen as fully human. Not every company wants that or will prioritize that. But for those who are prioritizing people over profits, I think that there's, you know, we can vision the world that we want to see. We can vision the kind of company that we want to create. And a lot of companies, especially when there's a lot of employees, are these like little mini cities almost um, that have, that, that build you know, behaviors and their own sort of mini Ten Commandments about what it means to be a part of that community. And so I, I think that they can be powerful tools for self-actualization and for growth and for blossoming and flourishing into the best person that we can be through our work in the world. That's great. Um, yeah, so interesting. I, I really am, am excited to kind of watch how, how your process develops and the work you do over time because I think it's such a such a meaningful question for us at this point in time where everyone's meaning and work. And uh, yeah. I know we're, we're almost at the end. I have one last question I'd love to throw by you before we jump off. You know, you, you mentioned a little earlier this idea of holidays as kind of pools that we, we, we allow, allow ourselves to slip into and also this idea of time in ritual, the rhythm of ritual. You know, I'm curious like most religions have a liturgical year, right? There's kind of these rhythms for remembering, for, for pausing, for atoning, all these things, right? For taking on new faces and experimenting with new ways of being. Do you have a sense for, you know, maybe outside of the, the corporate context, but just generally, where are people most lacking ritual? Is there a sense of, you know, where's the biggest gap in our now implicit liturgical year lacking external structures? Where are people most lacking ritual? Oh my gosh, I feel like whatever I say here is going to cause a <laughs> Someone's going to tweet this and then I'm going to be canceled. Um, I, what, oh gosh, where are people most lacking ritual? I, yeah, I don't even know where to begin. I, I, for me, the question is less where are people lacking ritual and more why are people's rituals not serving them well? I think there's a lot of rituals in our lives already. They're just not very good rituals. We haven't had a vocabulary, really, and an understanding of what they are, why they're important, and how we actually go about designing them better. I think that we've... A lot of things that we want to be rituals have become routines or habits or even traditions. Something that we like, but the meaning is really in its repetition and nothing more. So for me, I think that's the more sort of interesting inquiry. Really, there's rituals everywhere in our lives. It's in, in, in our education, in our government and our civic conversations, at work, at home, 
in our minds and in our hands and in our hearts. It's everywhere. They just can be better. They can have a deeper and, and sharper impact in our lives. They can focus us in ways that they haven't in the past, and they can connect us to our purpose in ways that I think for a lot of people, they've connected us to, like, it's a should, not a want. A lot of the rituals in our lives, I should do this, but not that I want to. So yeah, that's, that's how I'll avoid answering that question. <laughs> fair, fair. I mean, I think it's, it's a wonderful answer in and of itself. Um, and, and what a wonderful way to end. Um, Ezra, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's been really great to just be able to dive a little bit more into your, your work and some of the influences that I, I really um, didn't, didn't even, wasn't even aware of. Uh, but before we jump off, do you, uh, if people want to find out more about the work you're doing or more about you, where should they look online? Sure. Well, thank you, Casey, first and foremost, for um, convening this conversation and for bringing us out of our silos and into connection. People want to find me. My website is ritualist.life. You can find me on Instagram at ritual underscore IST, ritual underscore IST. And my email is Ezra at ritualist.life. So, you know, feel free if you're uh, sparked by this conversation and curious about how I can uh, help support whatever vision that you're trying to create in the world and create the rituals that will support it. Please email me Ezra at ritualist.life. Awesome. Ezra, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.